Hi, I'm Karen Martineau, founder of Bevival.com, and welcome back to the Long Before the End podcast series. In this series, we're examining our relationship with mortality by exposing how death, the protagonist, is portrayed in classic and contemporary literature. My hope is that these discussions will bring insight to your life as well as inspire your end-of-life narrative. I'm Jed Beitler. And I'm Michael Hamilton. We're discussing the book Death with Interruptions by Jose Saramago. In our last podcast, we explored the theme of quality of life versus quality of death. In this episode, we're going to look at how we view death. Saramago presents us with a couple unique situations that make us look at death in very different ways. At first, when death ceases, the entire country gets thrown into pandemonium. Religion, the economy, healthcare, everything's affected. The country is in complete chaos. We see the country collectively having to deal with this newfound challenge. And from that standpoint, it affects everyone. It's what we would call a we situation. For example, funeral directors have to leave the country to find work. The government even considers passing a law requiring domestic animals to have funeral rights. The cardinal speaking to the prime minister says, Religion is an earthly matter, has nothing to do with heaven. But then death realizes this was a huge mistake and changes course. There will be an immediate return to normality. All people that should be dead will die at midnight. I apologize for taking people's lives without prior warning, not allowing them to prepare, draw up a will, although in most cases I did send them an illness to pave the way. Death sends people letters letting them know they're going to die in five days. From now on, everyone will receive due warning, a week to put their affairs in order, say goodbye to family, ask forgiveness, and make peace. This situation turns that we perspective, something that affected the entire country, on its head. Now we're dealing with how the individual sees death, how each person processes the fact that they've been notified about their impending doom. It's no longer the we, it's now the I. In the book, death sends people illnesses as a harbinger, a warning, a wake-up call but whether the characters choose to act upon them is out of her control. It's a perfect parallel for our world. We've talked in the past about people's sense of immortality and how they feel superhuman, that nothing can hurt them. Yeah, it's kind of like a car analogy. It would be similar. If we got into a car, we'd start the engine, we'd go. We don't think about the oil pressure, the tire pressure, the brakes, the whatever. It's only when that check engine light comes on that we're shaken out of our complacency and recognize that we have to do something. That's the same for humans. Yeah, that whole switch from looking externally at how death affected the country to internally, how death affects the individual, I didn't expect that when I was reading and didn't prefigure it, but I can tell you it hit me very hard because a year and a half ago, my check engine light came on. I was diagnosed with multiple myeloma. And when I got the diagnosis and the prognosis, it was like being hit in the head with a two-by-four. Yeah, talk about the shift from immortality to mortality. I had to really adjust my focus. We're all going to be dying, shifted to I'm going to die. Suddenly, death became really tangible. And it was between me and me. 
So when the book talked about what am I doing about my death, I definitely got it. Now, thank goodness I'm in remission. You know, I wake up every day believing I have a long runway, but... I remember when you first confided in me about your diagnosis and about how your doctor wasn't certain about something and they started doing some more tests and then something became quite evident. How was that for you? Well, initially I was completely unconscious. And, you know, the value of being unaware is it's great armor against having to deal with the emotion of death. It actually took a long time before I had any awareness at all. And change anyway is really incremental, so I spend a lot of time in the weeds. So how did you deal with knowing that you were only human? Uh, it was painful. I, I guess I was ashamed. As an athlete, I felt immortal and that I let myself down. So I ended up struggling with the idea of having cancer. Each of you has his or her own death. You carry it with you in a secret place from the moment you were born. It belongs to you and you belong to it. But I'm a black and white kind of guy, so I'd react in one of two ways. I'd either whisper, cancer, when I talked about it, like it would go away if I spoke really softly. Now, my wife was my rock who worked me through much of this, and slowly I realized I couldn't keep it to myself. I couldn't hide the emotional effects. But as is characteristic of my ADD, I'd soon go over the top, and it was ridiculous. Yeah, I remember. You'd be on the tennis court, and we'd be playing a match. You'd serve a double fault, and then you'd scream across the net, Hey, uh, let's replay that point. I have cancer. Well, uh, kind of funny. I mean, in the dark humor side of things. Yeah, well, most people would laugh, but that could quickly turn from dark humor into something just dark. Prior to getting cancer or having it diagnosed, I was a socially empathetic guy, sensitive to others' conditions, but at a distance. Uh, going through the process of chemo was progressively challenging for me, but I, I saw the reactions of others, their concern, and my armor started to crack. And I began witnessing my own fragility, my vulnerability, and that's a difficult concept for guys. Navigating this confusing landscape, it taught me to focus on the quality of my death and life. Seeing the world in terms of a cycle of life and death. You can escape from everything, but not from yourself. Precisely. I went from death-denying to a death-discussion point of view. And in doing so, my life changed for the better, and I began to appreciate it. sounds corny, but I really believe this. I began to appreciate the gift of mortality. Yeah. You know, we don't want to make this sound trite because it's a very important point that you're making. Many people who have faced some kind of near-death experience, whether through illness or accident or war, report having a new perspective on their lives, a new respect for many of the things in their day-to-day -day lives that they previously took for granted. How much of what you do to prepare yourself for your death is all about you, and how much is it about those you will leave behind? It's about how death affects you, which is time-limited, and it's greatly different from how it affects those around you, which is potentially time limitless. Yeah, there's a great example of that in the book. The patriarch of one of the families views his arrested death in a very different way from those of his children. He feels he's too much of a burden on his family and he's ready to die. He feels he's being selfless by demanding that his children take him across the border to die. 
less to eliminate his own burden and more to eliminate theirs. Or is he being selfish by denying them his continued presence? And are his children selfish for denying him his wishes? Or are they being selfless by wanting to prolong his life? A human being is constantly under construction, but also in a parallel fashion, always in a state of constant destruction. To our listeners, how would you look at life in such circumstances? In our next podcast, we will continue to look at that dichotomy between selfless and selfish and explore how we tie up the loose ends of our lives. I'm Jed Beitler. As always, don't hesitate to send us your thoughts, insights, and questions. Tell us what you're reading. We'd love to hear from you. Our address is longbeforetheend at gmail.com. That's one word, longbeforetheend at gmail.com. And I'm Michael Hamilton. Thanks for listening.